Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast, brought to you by Martin Till. I'm McCain Vogel, Assistant Editor of No-Till Farmer. In today's episode, I sat down with Don Rykowski, retired USDA soil scientist, to talk about what truly defines conservation agriculture systems and what key pillars are necessary to be able to accurately describe a farm as one that is practicing conservation agriculture. I'm a retired soil scientist that work with USDA Agricultural Research Service. I started out on a small farm where my father was one of the first ones to use conservation contour strip. And when I was nine years old, we, I drove a tractor with a two-bottom plow, plowing those contour strips on the, on the contour. Anyway, that got me interested in conservation. I went on to Ohio State and got two degrees there, and then went to the University of Illinois to get a third degree in, in soil physics and, and plant biology a little bit. Then I took my first job with ARS at, at Florence, South Carolina, was there for nine years and moved to uh, Morris, Minnesota, and have been there for the rest of my career and the rest of my life. My, my only claim to fame, I think, in, in terms of the research is that we discovered that there was a huge burp of carbon dioxide that goes out of the soil when you plow. And I could tell you the story, perhaps when we have more time to uh, some of the details on that. But what we found out was that the amount of CO2 that came out of the soil was proportional to the volume of soil disturbed. And anybody that's driven a tractor with a moldboard plow, when you're plowing 10 inches deep, you're blowing a lot of diesel. So it was a double negative intensive tillage because we have the CO2 coming from the soil that results in a decrease in soil carbon, and we have the CO2 coming from the exhaust of the tractor. And so it's a double whammy when it comes to the CO2 emissions and contributing um, to our carbon footprint. So that got me um, around the world talking about no-till and carbon, and now I'm back to promoting the type of agriculture that I think fits and is required if we're gonna be truly sustainable. And I call it conservation agriculture. And I, and I like to use the word systems because we need to start thinking in systems concepts when we're working with the living soil. So in that few minutes, um, there's 50 years of experience. All right, good introduction there and a good segue as well. So I think we're gonna talk a lot about conservation agriculture today. And that term is something that we're hearing a little bit more often, but we also hear terms like sustainable agriculture and regenerative agriculture. So can you tell our listeners sort of what's the difference and and what is your best definition for conservation agriculture? Okay, well, uh, I I put the emphasis on conservation as a uh, because I'm sort of an old timer and conservation means to preserve and, and protect primarily our resources. And so when we have to understand that we have the sun, soil, water, and air as the primary resources, we have a responsibility to use them to generate our food, but we don't wanna do anything to degrade them because if we run out of resources, we run out of a food supply. So my emphasis on conservation is is being uh, concerned about protecting and preserving the resource for future generations. We have to live today because I need three meals a day, 
but we have to worry about what's going to happen to future generations. And when we have finite soil resources, when we have finite water resources, we have to start managing them to be efficient, uh, especially with an increase in uh, global population. And now with the crazy weather conditions that we have, the climate's becoming a big factor because the climate is a, one of the biggest factors affecting agricultural productivity. And we have to understand how agriculture may be contributing some negative factors in that regard. So conservation agriculture is pretty important to me. So uh, one statement that one of my colleagues uses, he says, uh, this is Theo Friedrich from, uh, from Germany. Uh, he says, conservation agriculture is the basis for sustainable farming using systems and ecological concepts. And one of the new things for me trained in soil physics is I'm learning to understand that the soil is a living system. It's alive and we have to start to understand that and respect it. But we also have to understand the complexity of that ecological system. And it's, it's beyond my pay grade level to uh, really say that I can understand it. But if we know that it's a living system, then that'll, we will treat it differently than we do with, a, um, with our um, big equipment and heavy uh, tractors and plows, uh, trying to abuse and slice and dice the, that little critters in the soil that are so important to us. What categorizes something as conservation agriculture? Because we talk about how no-till alone isn't, isn't fully conservation agriculture. Cover crops alone is not fully conservation agriculture. So what are the sort of the pillars or the things that you need to be doing to be able to be put in that category? When we talk about conservation agriculture, it's developed based on three primary principles. And the, the first one is minimum soil disturbance. The second is we want continuous crop biomass cover on the soil to protect it against erosion, et cetera, et cetera. And the third is diverse rotations and cover crop mixes to enhance the biodiversity. If we're working with a living system, uh, we need to keep that biodiversity. And we're trying to do it in nature's way. So the, these three principles need to be integrated and meshed in in a system. And that's why I like to talk about a systems thinking because it, it helps us put little segments of the, of the big picture together so we can focus on that and get some, some idea of the details. And that then when we start to expand and understand that everything in nature is connected, we'll get a better understanding of how we can make management decisions to enhance our production with um, and, and do it without minimizing any damage to nature's resources. So I think another um, another aspect of this that, uh, to my understanding, is, is an important one is, is the carbon and, and how that kind of factors in. And I think carbon is another word that in the world of agriculture that has a lot of buzz around it right now, but there's also a lot of confusion in terms of, you know, what are what are carbon credits? How can farmers benefit from them? But I guess the question I have for you related to conservation agriculture would be, does it matter whether we're calling this carbon sequestration or carbon storage or what's, what's the correct term and how does carbon factor into conservation ag? Carbon is so important. It makes up about 18% of our body. It makes up about 45% of the plant material, but it's only anywhere from 0.5 to 5% in our soils, a very, very small amount. 
And it's so important to us because it's the key thing that, well, in the process of photosynthesis, it's captured and creates this sugar that starts the food production process that's important to us all. And so this carbon comes into the system and when the food is harvested, it's got a certain portion of carbon in it that gives us energy so that we can carry out our life's activities. We're a living critter, we need the energy to keep operating. Well, when you look through the soil plant atmosphere system, carbon comes into that system through the plant. The plant puts some of it out to us in terms of that ear of corn or the grain, but some of that carbon goes into the roots to feed this living soil system. And that's the thing that does the most work for us in terms of generating nutrients to allow that ear of corn to produce and expand. But when we got that living system, just like you, when you breathe out, you breathe out carbon dioxide because of, of respiration. But you got the energy from it, and that's part of the way it's released. So it is with the living soil. They take in this carbon. They use it to release some of the nutrients and cycle them, release it in terms of uh, getting their population expanding. But when they do that, they release carbon dioxide back to the atmosphere, and it goes in and it completes that carbon cycle. So um, if, if there's, uh, well, I, I'm putting together an, another little table on the, the power of the plant. And the main power of that plant is able to capture that carbon and get it in a form that we as humans can use. And that is something that's very, very important to us in terms of our, our food security. So I've got biases about carbon. I've, I've spent, well, better part of 40 years doing things with it, and, and I'll, I'll be happy to answer more specific questions on that. So if I could then move to the uh, sequestration storage. Part. Yeah, please. Uh, I, I'm all for providing incentives for the farmers to do the right thing. And I think that there's needs to be a lot of effort in, um, in, in doing that. Because right now we're we're destroying the system faster than Mother Nature can regenerate it, if you will, and so uh, we don't have a lot of time. The problem is uh, there's some I think there's misinformation in using the word sequestration. When I look up the dictionary definition of sequestration, it means to take that carbon to sort of lock it up, set it aside, just like when the the jury is sequestered. They're put in a closet and you talk about things and whatever, but you're set aside and locked up from interacting with the major environment. And so in our agricultural system with, with a living soil, that's gotta have a continuous supply of energy. If you lock that carbon up, that biology is gonna suffer. They're gonna get hungry and they're not gonna be able to perform and do the nutrient cycling that's so important to us. So the other thing is that that word sequestration many times implies long-term. Now, the scientific community hasn't determined what long-term means, but that's typically was of the order of centuries. Some people talk about one century, and now there's a few people talking about 20 years. And one of the things that's critically important that if we're going to talk about sequestration, we have to have a finite time interval on which that carbon is accountable 
because we can count our carbon credit dollars to the nearest penny, but we can't count our carbon to the nearest pound per acre, if that's what we need, because it's so complex, so dynamically variable, spatially and temporally. It's just a real challenge. And so I prefer to call it carbon storage, which implies a shorter time interval. And that I think is um, a better way to do it. But when, as, as capitalists, when we want money for something, we are able to count those dollars and cents right down to the nearest penny. But in monitoring carbon, it is so variable in terms of the, uh, the concentration. When we have a good 200 bushel corn crop and you go out and measure the residue that you have after harvest and you come back the next year and measure the, that carbon, you have lost about 70% of it in that first year. And that's a lot of change going over. And then it sort of tails off. So there's so many challenges. There's no certification or standardization of methods. Everybody's working hard. And I, I sit through a two hour webinar yesterday explaining the complexities of, of this. And we're making progress, but it's not there yet. And so I think because carbon is so important in our agricultural production systems and our food security, we need to maintain good carbon management and I'm willing to reward that. But I say it's gonna be very difficult to get specific about quantitative amounts of carbon that are there um, because it's, it's, it changes slowly and it's also so difficult to measure. We'll come back to the episode in a moment, but first I'd like to thank our sponsor, Martin Till, for supporting today's podcast. As farmers themselves, the people at Martin Till know the frustration that unforeseen obstacles can bring, especially the weather. While no one can control drought or untimely rains, Martin Till can help equip your planter to allow for more time spent planting and less time waiting to get seed in the ground. Thank you for considering Martin Till products. And now, Let's get back to the conversation. With all these carbon programs that are out there and the carbon incentives for farmers, is there a way that you think it should be done or, or a good way to do it? Or is it kind of still just a question mark because we're not as far along as we need to be? Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm 82 years old and been around the horn a time or two. And things are happening so fast that I, ca I can't keep up with it. And I think that's good. There's a lot of other people that have other ideas about how it can be done. And, uh, and I'm, I'm glad to see that. But eventually we're gonna have to come to some sort of agreement on which is the best method uh, to do this, which provides the most benefit for society, if society is gonna help pay for it. And there's these different entities are, are struggling to do that. And it's good to see that that's happening because I, I think it's long overdue. So I'm, I'm, I'm all for the principle, but at this time, I, I, I really don't know which one would be best because the, the, the information is so much as just blossoming all over the place that we can't, uh, I can't keep up with it. The principle and concept, we need to work at it. Uh, I don't think we're there yet. And I, if, if the farmers are into it, 
I, I hope they keep an open mind and do what they need to do to maintain the environmental quality and, and the good carbon management. And if there's a chance to get a little extra money in, in, in terms of incentives, uh, open their mind to it, but make sure that they read the details, understand and dot all the I's and cross all the T's to make sure they know that what they're getting into. Uh, I'm, I'm not a legal person or a lawyer, and there's a, when, it, when it comes to money, we're, we're pretty finicky about how it's managed and how it's used. So, and as a taxpayer, I'm concerned about that, but I think that if we can come together, get some good policy, uh, that will eventually uh, be a benefit to society. Absolutely. Don, I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier when we were talking about the different pillars that make up conservation agriculture. And so I think it was the third one you mentioned, which was sort of this uh, idea of uh, different species and, and a rotation of different cover crops. What makes that so important? And what, like, why does that help the soil so much rotating? Okay, good, good question. I appreciate that. We try, we need to try to farm in nature's way. And nature has at least initially gave us all this biodiversity. She's been working on it for 4.3 billion years and finally given us what we, what we have. And so when we talk about diverse rotations, corn and soybeans is not a, not a rotation in my book. Corn, soybeans, and wheat becomes a little bit of a rotation. Corn, soybeans, wheat, alfalfa, and blah, 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 is, is what we need, the diversity. And it's, it's very important. And what, what diversity does, from my perspective, is you get these synergistic benefits that come out of it. So if you have um, you know, two entities pulling together, working together, you get a synergistic benefit of one plus one equals three in terms of the impact. And when you have a lot of different species, a, a lot of diversity, there's many more opportunities for this to happen. And so the, the diversity part of it enhances the synergy and that little bit of benefit we get from the synergistic, I think is what, why we need it. Agriculture has done a lot to mess up the, uh, the biodiversity we had with our um, intensive tillage and, and abuse of the, of the environmental system. But it's a, it's a tradition. We've been doing it for 10, 12,000 years and we've gotten away with it. But we're seeing now within 180 years here in the US, we've, we've lost between 30 and 70% of the carbon in our soils as a result of intensive tillage, the, the my research indicates. I don't think we can carry on with that much longer. Um, and we, we need to understand this, why this diversity is important and, and need to get back and trying to do it in nature's way. Yeah, it's a good explanation. I like that answer. So kind of going off of that, uh, this is another question I like to ask. Um, and I've gotten a, a wide variety of answers on. So I'm curious to see what you'll say. Um, we, you know, as an ag journalist, I work with a lot of different growers who maybe some of them are using cover crops, but they're not doing no-till or vice versa. We've got the no-till, but they're not really implementing as many cover crops. In your opinion, what is what is the biggest benefit or the biggest reason that somebody should be doing both cover crops and no-till? What's something that they're going to gain from doing both that they maybe wouldn't see with just one or the other, if that makes sense? Uh, okay, yes. Most people went to no-till as a result of the 
our experience with the Dust Bowl. It sort of started to come in that, and it's because of erosion. And it's easy to see that visibly when you see the gullies, you know there's something wrong. And, and that was the first thing that happened. The, the, so when, and then went on and there's people that are still doing just, just no-till with that emphasis. But they've got up and they sort of plateaued in terms of their benefits and the response and the yield response. But now with cover crops, cover crops also can help with the erosion if, if, you're, if you're doing any tillage. But the cover crops then are uh, very important in putting in carbon. And I, I, I should have mentioned that with intensive tillage, that does everything to kick carbon out of the soil. So you want to minimize the carbon loss. And now you want to maximize the carbon input. So you want to pick your rotation so they have that diversity in. But in between those economic crops, you need to find some way to protect that soil. And while that plant is living, it's capturing carbon, putting it into the system. And so it's the synergistic benefit of, of not chopping up the bugs and disturbing the microbes, plus the additional carbon input, those root exudates that nurture the thing and the earthworms that help make the holes for the infiltration. The combination of those two things is what's resulting in the benefit. So those are the first two principles of conservation agriculture. And to amplify that, the, the biodiversity needs to come in because the more diverse your is, system is, the closer you are to working with mother nature. So I think another thing that might be important to talk about would be um, sort of like the cost efficiency of, of conservation agriculture. Because I think that some people maybe have a stigma of, of whether, you know, if they're doing their, their ag system a certain way, and they've got this idea that it's going to be, you know, really costly to, to switch methods or, you know, to switch to no-till or to do something differently than how they've been doing it. Can you speak at all uh, in terms of, you know, cost efficiency in conservation agriculture? Well, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> you know, it, it, that's one of the big things. And as, as, as capitalists, that's the first thing we respond to. But if you've ever driven a, a Ten bottom plow with a big 400 horsepower tractor, you know how much diesel that is consuming. You know how much iron you're dragging through the soil. And so the benefits are the reduction in the input cost with conservation agriculture system. So with those three principles operating, uh, your fossil fuel is probably cut in half for the, for the whole operation decreases the amount of labor you need because you don't have to have somebody ride that tractor. The equipment costs in terms of not having a plow or a disc or a subsoiler or whatever other equipment you need, um, it, uh, it reduces that. But it does increase the cost of that no-till drill. And if that's the big hang-up, then that, that's a limitation. But it decreases the repair and maintenance cost because you're not bulldozing tons of soil every year. Uh, it, it decreases the nitrogen fertilizer if you've got some of the cover crops in that can capture 150 pounds of nitrogen a year. And so that part of it is a, is a little bit different. And then when you get into this operation, it decreases the, the uh, pesticide cost. And in uh, one example is that with uh, Gabe Brown up in North Dakota, he doesn't use any pesticides anymore and he's down to using less than 10% of the Roundup that he's done because he's managed a system to help the, get the economic crops, his cattle and the cover crops to control 
control the weeds. And so then it enhances the water management. And with all these flash floods we're getting, agriculture is going to have to do something to suck up the water rather than let it run off and run down the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico. So it can increase the water use efficiency. And so some of these numbers I get are sort of anecdotal, and this is what the, what the farmers tell us. So the reduced input cost is one of the things that's going to make it more profitable. It's going to make it environmentally friendly, and it's going to make it more economical and sustainable for the farmer. Another thing that you've mentioned a couple times so far today is that we're kind of running out of time. And uh, something that you and I talked about before this interview today is conservation agriculture from a global perspective, which I think is hopefully going to help get this implemented uh, quicker. And one of the groups you mentioned to me, I think was called the CACOP. Is that right? Right. It's, it's a community of practice for conservation agriculture. Uh, it's run by Amir Kassam from the UK. And uh, he is one of the, sort of the, the, the leaders of it, but there's a small group of key people from around the, around the world that stay closely connected and, um, and, are, and are a part of that. So they have been doing this and, and, and I've been a part of it for the last well, 25 years. And, um, and just both of uh, several of us are starting to get up in years. And anyway, there's, um, Three major books that Amir Kassam edited that describes uh, all of the global conservation agriculture up to date. And now there's several other smaller articles that are that are coming out. And I did a couple of book chapters on it also. And um, we're getting ready to hand things over to the younger generation. And I don't want to have them to um, go back and relearn what it took us 25 years to learn. And hopefully that they can pick up and, and make progress in terms of getting this stuff implemented and on the landscape um, for society. Um, when we look at the climate extremes, the wildfires, the number of hurricanes, 50 inches of water in three days in terms of rainfall in Houston. Um, and we, we've been with only two inches of water here in Minnesota this, this season so far. Uh, and these extremes and, and the variability, they're not helping food production. So um, I think that we need to think globally because we're all living on this planet. And if we don't have the <coughs> security of the planet in mind, we're, we're going to mess up our home and we won't be around. Don, is there anything we didn't touch on yet today that you'd like well, to Well, one, one thing about the the benefits of, of conservation agriculture is that it also contributes to the environmental quality of all of society, not just the farmer. Uh, because conservation agriculture, it avoids or minimizes erosion and runoff. It minimizes the pollution and the algae. It uh, minimizes the environmental damage from greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, there's some social issues and things. It avoids the cost of rehabilitating the degraded soils. And it's uh, very good at regenerating the ecosystem services that we mucked up in, in agriculture. And then it's also, I think, going to be very helpful in addressing some of the climate extremes that are going to have a major impact on food production. And so all of those things that I just mentioned, we don't know how to put a dollar value on it. But if we don't have them, we're not going to be able to live here on this planet much longer. And so 
when you balance the environmental degradation and when you eliminate the environmental degradation of intensive tillage agriculture and implement this conservation agriculture system, there's an unknown cost for allowing it to be sustainable and allow us to proceed into the future with, uh, with a little bit of food security. So it's, um, uh, I don't know that it's the best way, but it's the best way that I know at this time. And I prefer to call it conservation agriculture systems. If you want to call it regenerative ag or soil health ag or sustainable ag, I don't care what you call it. But as long as you apply those three or four primary principles that are important, uh, we're all on the same page because we're all going to benefit from that type of system. That's it for this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. Thanks to Don Rykowski for that great conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Till, for helping to make this podcast possible. The transcript of this episode and our archive of previous podcast episodes are both available at notillfarmer.com. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening. Keep on no-tilling and have a great day.